getting f***ed off. That's disgusting, dude. Just get back to work and do your job. Like, don't waste taxpayers' money. You're here. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. What's, what's your name? That's so messed up. I think that men are really surprised that we face this because they don't face the same issue when they go walk to the drugstore or go out to run an errand. I get catcalled most days that I walk outside. I feel scared and angry at them, but also just like angry that this is my experience being a woman in this society. There are plenty of men who know that this is wrong and don't want it to be done, but I guess there's that, you know, you don't know what to do. Like, do I, do I say something? Welcome to Unraveling Pink a podcast tackling gender bias through conversation. I'm Annie Ryaski. As a reminder, and for any new listeners, in this spring season, my episodes are exploring different ways the man box restricts men and impacts women. The first episode of the season goes into the definition of the man box, so you can check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. But generally, the man box is the ways that we expect men to behave in manly ways, like to not show emotion or to be strong or stoic, that make it difficult even for male allies to speak up against gender bias. In each episode, I try to tackle how the man box impacts women, why it causes certain action or inaction in men, and what, if anything, we can do to ease its grip on all of us. This week's topic is men's objectification of women. I'm sure every woman listening has experienced something, catcalling on the street, gender bias or harassment at work, feeling unsafe when you walk down the street, fear, assault, rape. There's a lot of impacts that result from objectification of women. And given the substantial negative impact this has on women, I wanted to explore where it comes from and why it happens. So I dug into this a little bit, and no surprise, I found it had roots in the man box. An article in A Call to Men spells this out for us. It says, in the man box, men are supposed to be powerful and dominating, fearless and in control, strong and emotionless, successful in the boardroom, the bedroom, and on the ball field. In the man box, women are objects, the property of men, and of less value than men. The teachings of the man box allow violence against women, girls, and other marginalized groups to persist. So that's pretty depressing if you're female. And uh, as a lawyer, it uh, reminds me of the old days that predate my age, but just from reading reading law books, of when women were chattel and had no rights and were the property of men. So this certainly has roots in our society generally of the, the lack of rights that women had, in our country at least, and the fact that, that men had the power and women did not. So maybe long before the man box ever came to be or as part of the development of the man box, the lack of rights that women had certainly contributed to society and men in particular objectifying us. So there's a long history of objectifying women and I was curious about how people find that it shows up. I read an article by Robin Tran, who is a transgender woman 
Uh, the article's entitled, Four Ways Men Are Taught to Objectify Women from Birth. And she says that she spent many years viewing women as objects of my affection rather than complex people with feelings, wants, and needs of their own. While it doesn't excuse my behavior, I was taught at a very early age to view women as prizes to win. The belief that women are trophies still permeates through our culture, whether it's in the media, education, or simple everyday conversation. When we're taught that an entire gender exists purely to satisfy others' needs, it dehumanizes millions of people, and it's very difficult to have empathy for someone you don't view as a real person. It encourages the objectification of women because we're so frequently represented as rewards for men who vie for us, even though our desires are rarely, if ever, taken into consideration. It wasn't until I actually inquired about the lives of women that I realized I had been dehumanizing and objectifying women for many years. I was initially shocked by my mindset as I had always prided myself in not being someone who would ever partake in blatant sexism. However, the objectification of women is so pervasive that I wasn't even aware that I was complicit in it. It's very likely that there are many people, particularly men, who don't realize that they're perpetuating a culture that dehumanizes and objectifies women. I love that Robin shared her perspective, both of how she was taught and how she sees the objectification of women impact women. I think her concluding thought is right on. Objectification is so pervasive we may not even realize it's happening or that we're participating in it. And I think it's also true that many well-meaning men don't intentionally objectify, but are so used to social norms and the way we interact in society that they participate in it without even intending to. The opening audio was a number of excerpts from an ABC News hot button episode, which looked at how women are actually treated when they're, on, when they're on the street and the women were mic'd up as they walked down the street. You heard the typical catcalling that I'm sure women listeners will recognize as what we hear all the time when we're outside. What was interesting about it was the boyfriend's reaction. So the boyfriends watched the video and listened to the audio of what was happening to their girlfriends out on the street. And they were pretty surprised by that. And I think that shows the different experiences of men and women. And it almost seems like there's this compartmentalization that men are able to do that if they do something, it's not seem, seen as harmful if they cat call or make a comment about a woman. But if someone said something like that about their significant other, they would have a very different reaction. And maybe as we get to solutions, one of the things we need to think about is reconciling those different behaviors and thinking that every comment that a man makes is about somebody's significant other or mother or daughter or sister. And we should all not want that to happen to anyone. But in any case, it's clear that objectification has a negative impact on women. So it's a problem. I read about a study that was conducted literally about men viewing women as objects, which confirms Robin Tran's observation that objectification happens a lot and likely without men even thinking about it, and also that it has real implications in the workplace. This study was reported by Ed Yong in 2010 in an article entitled How Objectification Silences Women, the Male Glance as a Psychological Muzzle. And he writes, 
Tamar Segui's study is one of the first to provide evidence of the social harms of sexual objectification. The act of treating people as depersonalized objects of desire instead of as individuals with complex personalities. It targets women more often than men. It's apparent in magazine covers showing a woman in a sexually enticing pose, in inappropriate comments about a colleague's appearance, and in unsolicited looks at body parts. These were what Segui focused on. She recruited 207 students, 114 of whom were women, on the pretense of studying how people communicate using expressions, gestures, and vocal cues. Each one sat alone in a room with a recorder and a video camera. They had two minutes to introduce themselves to a male or female partner using a list of topics such as plans for the future or four things you like doing the most. The partner was supposedly sat in the next room and either watching the speaker from the neck up, watching from the neck down, or just listening on audio. The camera was tilted or blocked accordingly. Segui found that women talked about themselves for less time than men, but only if they thought they were being visually inspected by a man, and particularly if they thought their bodies were being checked out. They used the full two minutes if they were describing themselves to another woman, no matter where the camera was pointing, or if they were speaking to a man who could hear but not see them. But if their partner was a man watching their bodies, they spoke for just under one and a half minutes. This is fascinating to hear some objective evidence of the impact on women of the male gaze. I'm sure every woman listening has experienced this at some point. I've seen this happen in the workplace. I know it's happened to me. It's this uncomfortable moment when you realize the man you're in conversation with is not listening to you, is not viewing you as a colleague or even really as a person, but instead is just checking you out. And it rips the power right out of your hands unless you can find a way to push through or walk away. And I think women get pretty good at navigating this after it happens many, many, many times. But it can make you feel powerless, depending on who the other person is and the power dynamic that existed before that moment. It can put you in a box. As Derek Jensen wrote in the Huffington Post in an article entitled The Man Box and the Cult of Masculinity, he writes, The ones I care about are their victims, because the man box isn't about putting men in a box. It's about putting everyone else in a box. The box of other, of less than, of trophies the box of the violable, the box of targets, the box of victims, the box of the violated, the box of proof of the men's own manhood. For men under this patriarchy, these acts of violating others are how we become who we are. They validate who we are. They then reaffirm who we are, as through these repeated acts of violation, we come to perceive each new violation as reinforcement not only of our superiority over this other we violated, but as simply the way things are. Wow, that is pretty sad and depressing that it not only happens, but happens over and over and over again, and that validates men so would encourage more and more acts. That's a big problem. So after digging into all this research, it didn't really uh, give me a whole lot of hope for where we can head in the future. 
but I wanted to sit down again with my friend Sam Devins and have a conversation with him about different ways objectification plays out and why it happens. These are tough issues to talk about, and I'm grateful to Sam for talking with me about them. As we've noted before, our conversations try to bring in a broader perspective of both men and women, but not just our views. These are not Annie's views and Sam's views that we're trying to present. We're trying to present a broader slice of what we think our gender on average might think about the topic. So here's our conversation. So Sam, we have talked about a lot of issues pertaining to the man box. And one of the things that we talked about a while ago that I wanted to come back and talk about again is what happens among men when women are in the room and kind of in a work setting. And this was prompted in my head because as I prepared for this episode, I was looking at how the man box teaches men at an early age, boys at an early age, to view women as objects. That seems to have a particular impact in the workplace in which women may not have as much respect Certainly, there are issues of bias and harassment that come into play, but I'm kind of curious about the more environmental impact that it might have on the vibe in the room and what happens among men that women may not be aware of. Mm, That's interesting. I know we talked about this a long time ago, and I was trying to remember, because it was kind of a stream of consciousness. I was talking about this, and based on my own experience of, of what happens and how the temperature of the room changes in different ways, we're talking about like a work context, like say in a meeting, there's a, a bunch of men mm-hmm. in, uh, before the meeting starts, there's a bunch of men talking about whatever men talk about, you know, yeah. take your pick. And that's familiar territory for men. Uh, when a woman enters the room, the chemistry changes and it changes because it's unfamiliar territory. Men are so used to talking to other men that uh, when a woman enters the room, speaking generally, a filter goes up, I think, and everything that men would just normally comfortably say has to pass through that filter. And that filter could be filtering out a bunch of things that, you know, men kind of have to mind their P's and Q's more around women than they would have to with men. Is this a me too driven kind of filter or has it always been there? Um, I would imagine this is prior to me too. I mean, I just in the workplace in Mm -hmm. the nineties and the aughts and up until now it's been, I think men, believe it or not, since I've been working have been a bit more conscious about that. And you watch shows like Mad Men and get a glimpse at uh, how things were and how male-dominated it was. And there wasn't that filter that men had, that women were almost invisible. You didn't have to regard them or worry about what you had to say. Um, or the impact. what are you worried about? I mean, take your pick. Uh, it's, it's, I'm sure in some ways reverence, um, not saying something untoward that could definitely get you in trouble at work. And men don't have those barriers when they talk to one another. Mm. And it's a comfort that men share, generally speaking, that they don't have with women. And that's why I think men advance a lot faster and get promoted a lot more because it's a comfort level. You know, this is like, 
something that we're just familiar with and less so with women. So there's less face time with women, that, that being the byproduct, and um, there's less transparency and openness. Hmm. But you knew that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I felt, no, that's I felt the new. temperature in the room change sure. when I walk yeah, in. I think, every, I, felt... I think every woman listening right now is, yeah. is like, okay, well, yeah, we know that. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely, you can hear when someone catches themselves and changes what they're going to say because mm. you're there. And sometimes they look at you and sometimes they don't. But right. you know, usually, if, if you're the only woman in the room, you know it's because of you. Sure. Um, but, but what is it that men are afraid of? Or what is the filter? Is it, is it just that you're going to offend women and you're going to get in trouble for it? Or is it something else? It's a lot of things, and I keep coming back to it just being so unfamiliar. Growing up, we just, boys and girls do not interact. We don't intersect that much. Girls have their groups of friends. Boys have their groups of friends. And it just seems they are on, like, parallel paths that never intersect. And when they do, it's over social situations, you know, asking a girl out to a dance, um, pursuing girls. And that's, I think, where the objectification comes from because they are these unfamiliar beings that we don't have any understanding of, truly don't have any understanding of. But then, so, okay, so we've got, let's say, two genders for purposes of this conversation. And let's say men or boys see women or girls as different. Yeah. And, but then the the concept of objectification comes in at some point and the, the there's there's not an equal power dynamic it's not just boys don't understand girls and girls don't understand boys and they're on equal footing there's mm -hmm. a there's a power differential and so that when they get older when they get older when they're younger when they get older okay i think i think it's up in probably through school i think the i don't know i don't know when the power differential actually changes but there's this the shift where certainly by the time you get to the workplace, the workplace was largely set up by men and it was largely for men because mm -hmm. there were very few women in the workplace, uh, at least in positions of power early on. And so at that point, when you have two groups that don't really understand each other and one is in a position of power and one is not, mm -hmm. then that certainly seems to support what we're seeing in the objectification side of things of if you view someone as an object, they're going to be of less value. They're right. going to be lower in the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. They are there to serve you or be a tool or whatever. And so somewhere along the way, this, this lack of understanding of each other benefits men and harms women. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of men have experience with women beyond the girlfriend or the wife or someone that you are um, interested in. Um, but what about sisters? What about mothers who maybe worked? A mother is nurturing and um, providing something for you and uh, a lot of times isn't asking for much in return. Mm -hmm. And... So I don't think that, I was going to say, uh, 
that that doesn't count when it comes to the workplace. Because I don't think any woman wants to be the mother or yeah, nurturing right. or like, you know, put in that, in that particular box. Yeah. And if that's uh, in large part men's experience with women, that, that clouds everything, right? So what are the different boxes that, that men put women in? Like there's the mom box, there's the girlfriend or wife box, or mm -hmm. maybe there's the secretary box of you're yeah, going man. to... You know what just triggered? This last presidential race, and I heard a lot of men talking about, I'm never going to vote for that woman, is because they couldn't put her into one of those boxes. Mm -hmm. She doesn't remind me of my mom. And she's not somebody I would ever date. Like, I'm not attracted to her. Mm -hmm. So what is she? Mm -hmm. She's unelectable. Like, I'm not voting for her. Even people who are Democrats said they weren't going to vote for her. Yeah. I think because, and I thought this at the time, it's just because she didn't have that appeal. And she was told, you should smile more. And I'm sure she had advisors saying, you need to mix up your message and change your tone or whatever it is. So what does that look like in the workplace? I think the same boxes exist. I think men are trying to and struggling with what box do I put this woman in because we're, we don't have a lot of experience with women beyond those boxes. Like men and uh, boys and teenagers don't have a lot of times friends that are girls that there is no underlying sexual subtext right yeah it's very rare and when there's a lack of that and you're not getting to know women on a level deeper than what your desire is you have no experience so when a woman walks into a meeting it just i think men kind of fumble with like okay well how do i act like it's it's unfamiliar. That's why I keep coming back to yeah. unfamiliar. But yeah, and I get that. But I, what what is it nagging sounds, it in my head? Ridiculous. It, it, it sounds ridiculous. It does, and the reason it's, it sounds ridiculous to me is that, like, I've been in the workforce for well over twenty years, mm -hmm. and some men I worked with for like fifteen years straight, they can't be unfamiliar with me at that point. And they can't be unfamiliar with women in the workplace because they've encountered them for at least 15 years. So at, one, at what point are they familiar enough that women are not viewed as objects or lesser than? I'm not sure. I just think that there are boundaries that whether they're real or imagined that, that men have with women that they don't have with men. Even if we've worked with them for 10 or 15 years... I don't know why, but there is there is this there's an invisible line there that it's it's very hard to articulate. So I've been kind of giving you a hard time, but I will I will admit something, which I know you like when I admit things. Yes, on, please. On the podcast yeah, more of that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm the only one admitting anything. <laughs> so I had an all female law firm, and. It was pretty awesome in terms of how comfortable it was and how easy it was to interact. And there were times when we would have all partner meetings 
And I felt like we were like longshoremen in the old days. Like there were, there was language and uh, improper jokes and, and all sorts of stuff that we knew because we're all partners and there was no liability among us. You we could talk to, freely. You didn't, you didn't have to qualify anything. You, you didn't have to apologize. Anything. Yeah. We went into this partnership with our eyes open. We knew who each other were. We, mm. we were able to truly be ourselves. And while we lacked diversity, um, certainly gender diversity, and that I think... By I think, design. No, not not entirely by design. If there had been an amazing male admin who looked fantastic, <laughs> I will edit that part out. No, please leave it in. <laughs> All right, maybe I'll leave it in. I was joking. It was yeah, a joke. I know. Yes. <laughs> um, no, we we weren't excluding men, but we started a firm with three of us and we happened to be women and we all happened to be passionate about gender equality. And, um, we did hire people who, who were stay at home parents. Mm -hmm. We didn't seek out just women. No. And so it wasn't, it wasn't by design. We weren't trying to exclude men, but we happened to be, um, a firm that I think attracted women. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we lacked something by our lack of diversity but we also got a little glimpse into what it was like for men before women came into the workplace, for example. You, and you felt the, comfort. The, the benefit yeah. of it all. Yeah. And that's something that you, whether you admitted it or not, correct me if I'm wrong, that that's something that you wanted to protect, that feeling. I liked it, but I, I really feel strongly that diversity makes our output better mm -hmm. and it would have no question changed the dynamic in the office if we had hired a male attorney for example to, yeah. to sit in at a partner level right. it would have been a different environment mm -hmm. and I, I get that and I um, certainly can appreciate from that experience that there is a difference I don't know exactly what it is um, and I think now I'm in a, a company that is much more diverse and it's very comfortable like we've managed to f create a culture in which people can be themselves and they've commented you know i i feel like everyone brings themselves to work yeah and i think that's a unique thing that is not present everywhere but even there i think people watch what they say depending on who's in the room do you feel you've accomplished accomplished that because it's small? Yes, we've accomplished that because it's small and because we were very deliberate about what we were trying to create. Yeah. And I think we built the culture a little bit around the, the people and sort of teased out from thinking about our team, what are the qualities that make us so good together? Mm-hmm. And we realized that one of those qualities was we all had a slightly different set of skills and quirks. Like someone commented that we all have these quirks. We're a very quirky group, but we're quirky in different ways. And those different quirks complement each other. And rather than try to squelch those quirks, we tried to enhance them and encourage people to express who they are, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's worked very well, but it, it was deliberate. Yeah. 
it's interesting to hear that you've had that experience. You've you've felt what it's like to be around nothing but women, yeah. and um, the strength that you get from that, the comfort, and um, and how quickly you can make decisions and move. Yes, and I think that's yes. one thing that I mean, maybe we're going a little far afield now, but I don't think so. Um, I think the the bro culture in Silicon Valley and startups of we need to move fast. We need to be the competition. And it's so much easier if we're comfortable with each other. It's a sprint. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't have to watch our words and think twice. We can move. We can just say whatever's on our mind and move fast. You can't have filters. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's the, that's the thought. But then the problem, yeah. And then the problem is, of course, that then you have a one-dimensional product that doesn't necessarily resonate with a more diverse consumer base or audience or customer base, whoever it might be. And you might have sprinted to the first end of the first phase, but then you have a steeper hill to get to the end of the second phase right. than you would have had if you had a more diverse team out of the gate. That's invisible to men. Like that's hard to quantify. The, the phase two. Or just like it just deal been, with that in the future. It could have been so much better if we were diverse, you know unpacking the failure and be like, well, why didn't we get to the next phase? I doubt many men out there would raise their hand and say, well, look at our team. Like we're all a bunch of dudes. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't say, yep, that's, that's why we failed. I guess my point is that men don't reflect in that way. And if men spend 10% of the amount of time they spent ogling women and objectifying women on self-reflection and, and trying to be the best versions that they can be of themselves, whatever form that takes. The irony is, is that they would be a lot happier. I think men objectify women. I think it comes from a place of sadness for men. I think when men objectify a woman, it gives them a bit of a charge, like a little dopamine charge and they're able to forget what is deficient about them what is making mm -hmm. them sad or angry or fearful or stressed i think the more men do it men kind of get addicted to and it becomes pathological i think that might be the root of it all and what worries me and i know that you want to talk about solutions and how do we okay tell me how to solve this how do problem, we solve this Sam. well let me tell you the reason why it's so hard to solve I think the generations that are coming up now are on the right path and are more conscious of, of all these issues than, than our generation. But I also worry that the availability of pornography and every teenage boy has a phone and has mm -hmm. access for free, and that is their... I talk about boys and girls not really ever intersecting mm -hmm. growing up. Yeah. So if this is what, you know, boys and teenagers, if this is the input that they're getting over and over and over and over and over, mm -hmm. that becomes, that perception becomes reality for them. And it's so skewed. And that's what I worry about that I have hope that this next generation 
has a has a better dialogue around these matters, but at the same time, I know that teenage boys are lost. Well, I think your metaphor of parallel paths is is pretty apt because what I think girls experience is the fashion and beauty magazines that show an unrealistic ideal of a woman's body or a girl's body and mm-hmm. and it those media treat women as objects and sexualize them and that's what girls grow up i mean i had 17 magazine when i was in high school and that was my window into the world of what girls and women were supposed to look like we have a much better awareness now of the different sizes and shapes and colors of women's bodies and those are somewhat better represented in the media that we have but it's not enough and there's still media that sends girls into eating disorders and um, I think all of it it's like the there are these parallel destructive paths for boys and girls that then intersect when they get into the workplace. <laughs> and, and all of these expectations collide and then you have the added layer of how do we treat each other as colleagues. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's amazing we're not worse off. You were saying that you know girls see women represented a particular way in magazines and on TV and in movies and they want to emulate that. That's, that's kind of the goal, you know, be thin, you know, um, whatever traits. I think men confuse that and think that women are doing that, doing that for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be why men feel entitled to say things and to do things because they're under the impression that that women are doing that to attract men and i'm sure you're familiar with you know like you know a man says something to a woman at a bar wearing tight clothing or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and the woman's uncomfortable with that and says something um, and the man said, well, why, why are you wearing that then? You know, men do not get it. They're like, if, if, if you don't want us to say anything, why on earth are you, why do you look this way? <laughs> and this is super touchy. Yeah. Right? Super touchy. It is. And yeah. I have to like, I hear the words coming out of my mouth and I'm like, Ugh, I'm speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling the curtain back, you know, and trying to express <laughs> yeah, I what I know about that. men, yeah. you know. And I I mean that's the point of this and um, that's why I'm I'm taking a breath Ugh. and trying to figure out where to like go. Like lightheaded with this. talking about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that 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 brings up. So there's the like as teenagers, I can remember, I think I've shared this with you before, but I, I grew up Catholic, and I remember going to a youth group thing, and they had separated the boys and the girls, and, and in the girls' section, they were talking to us about not wearing tight jeans and not wearing revealing tops and all these things, and it's like, wh- why do we have to make the adjustment? And, and I think this is one of the frustrations that women have is at every step, for every collision with the male gender, women 
are expected to adjust. We're expected to adjust to the heat in the office. We're expected to adjust to the style of the office and the aggressiveness of the culture. And, um, and we're expected to not dress in a way that attracts men that we don't want to attract. And yet, why can't men just not say inappropriate things to women? Like, why does the way the woman looks have to be the reason that a man says something or not? Like, use some self-control, right? And that's, that's the female response, I would, I think, generally. And another response I think women would have is we dress, there are exceptions. So I think there are plenty of women who do dress in order to attract male attention, but they want to attract male attention that they want. And often what they attract are guys they want nothing to do with. And so there's this mismatch in that this guy thinks she's interested in anyone, but she's not interested in him. And so there's a collision because maybe she was dressing to attract a man, but just not that man. But plenty of women dress to feel confident. And there's a lot of confidence hits in the daily life of women and dressing in a way, whatever it might be, where you feel confident about who you are is a huge reason why women dress however they dress. So then is the solution to have men and women interact more, have boys and girls interact more? Like if it's a lack of familiarity, and I know we've talked about a lot of the solutions we're coming up with, is going back to when your kids mm -hmm. or parents teaching their, their sons. Is it um, having girls and boys play together more, interact together more, not be as segregated yep. in the school age? And yep. I mean, that solves potentially a future problem, but then what about everybody in the workplace now? Like, is there something we can do to break down those barriers and bring men and women together as colleagues and show some other way of viewing women. We talked about it last time. I believe it was last time about um, male allies yeah. yeah, and and speaking up. Everybody needs to speak up and it's hard for men to speak up alone. But if you have backup and you have like a pack mm -hmm. um, that men are familiar with and they're, you're working more as a team and men definitely... Um, are more emboldened when they have um, backup. That reminds me of like my nieces and nephews who are teenagers, and they go on these group outings. I'm not even going to call them dates. It's not so much one-on-one -on -one relationships where you view this person as your romantic interest, mm -hmm. but it's groups of boys and girls who are spending time together and they're not paired off so much. They're just spending time together. And that sounds kind of like what you're talking about. I think so. Where you just, you have less of that one-on-one -on -one interaction and more group interaction where people are probably more naturally themselves and comfortable when there's at least one other of their 
gender yeah. present and they can kind of be themselves. And I think those groups kind of self-police themselves, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think um, a boy could get away with behavior that upsets the group. Mm. If a boy says something that hurts a girl's feelings, mm -hmm. there are many witnesses. And I think that is the environment that, that boys and girls need to learn how to resolve conflict. Those are the moments where um, boys get educated. I like that idea of group policing. I just talked with a friend the other day who grew up in Taiwan. And when she was in school there, they had uh, student discipline. So basically, she was in, I think, kindergarten, and if somebody did something that someone else complained about, they went to the discipline students, I think male and female, and they would have to work out what would happen. Mm. And it sounded amazing. Like, the kids took that responsibility really seriously, and they thought about what level of punishment or whatever was appropriate and it sounded like they worked things out more than they doled out punishment okay and i wonder if something about that group dynamic and and children interacting with each other in groups and having responsibility for that group yeah being a constructive positive thing to be a part of might teach those skills this is the world that we're sending our children into where they're going to join the workforce and be working together. Why aren't they uh, given that experience when they're much younger, mm -hmm. project-based, where the equal parts male and female and um, the roles get you know, changed and mm -hmm. uh, project leads um, are either a woman or you know, a boy or a girl? Right. Why do we not have that and expect everything to be fine once we get into the workforce? Because mm -hmm. no, nothing's fine, right? Yeah. But I know men are thinking, so where do we go from here? Like, how do we express ourselves and the roles of, of a man and a woman and attraction? And it's not rocket science. And I think if, if men just took a step back and were way more thoughtful of of how they go about all of that, so much of it would be solved. Because I think men have just been so entitled for so long that they just kind of say and do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Maybe a few times out of 100 they're called on it, but that's not enough for change. Men just have to evolve. You have to catch them early, teach them right from wrong, and what it is to be a man moving forward. Because it certainly isn't working now. The most important thing that we can do when it comes to catcalling and street harassment is to teach young boys never to disrespect any woman. Well, we came up with a couple solutions, I think, in that conversation. And I think Sam's insights confirmed a lot of the research that I read and also offered some, some different perspectives into it. So I appreciate that conversation. In terms of solutions and where we go from here, I think it's clear that we need to start early, similar to the suggestions Sam's given throughout the season. And that's confirmed by an article uh, entitled Breaking Out of the Man Box. So here's some suggestions for everyone to try out. Allow boys to embrace and express a full range of emotions, 
Allow men and boys to cry. Validate men and boys' feelings. Allow men and boys to be and to act afraid. Let men and boys ask for help. And then some suggestions for men and boys. Value women and treat all people equally. Never use power, control, or violence. Never use gender-based attributes to bully or discriminate. Do not make or laugh at sexist jokes. Don't perpetuate negative stereotypes. Listen to women and validate their experiences. Embrace female friendships. Model a healthy, respectful manhood to other men and boys. So I think these are great suggestions, and a lot of them may seem pretty basic and common sense, but I think it's useful to be reminded. In this episode, we seem to have converged on a solution of more interaction among men and women to gain familiarity outside a romantic context, to build a framework for working together in a way that is as familiar between genders as within genders. So I hope you give that a try this week. And if you do, please let me know how it turned out. You can email me at unravelingpink at gmail.com. You can message me on Twitter at unravelingpink. I will be back next week with another Manbox-related topic. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.